It was the third day in an obscure village in Galilee, Cana to be exact. There was a wedding that took place, replete with all the dancing, music, and rejoicing one would expect. The incarnate Son of God was in attendance. And suddenly, when it seemed the festivities would come grinding to a halt, there was a great miracle that no one expected. You all know the story. It's the narrative of Jesus turning water into wine. We're familiar with the sequence of events that took place that day. We teach our children about it in Sunday school. Many pagans, even, have some acquaintance with this event, although we can't take that for granted anymore these days. But while it's clear to all of us that Jesus turning water into wine is nothing less than miraculous and a magnificent display of his great power, the deeper significance of that event may not be so obvious. What are we to make, for example, of Jesus' cryptic response to his mother? What does our Lord mean when he says his hour has not yet come? And why are these things so significant to Jesus' disciples that they believed him to be the promised Messiah because of them? Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, there is much more than meets the eye when it comes to the wedding in Cana. And both St. John the Evangelist and our Lord himself would have us look beyond the obvious and contemplate these things from the perspective of the heavens above. Only then, having been taken up in the Spirit of God, will we have eyes to behold exalted things otherwise hidden, to perceive the divine splendor of the picture painted for us in St. John's text. In the first place, we should note how the evangelist introduces the narrative. He writes as one recalling all these things after encountering the risen Lord. He begins with the phrase, on the third day. What St. John wants us to see, dear Christians, is the connection between the events about to unfold in our text and the resurrection of our Lord. The wedding in Cana took place on the third day, just as Christ our Lord was raised on the third day after his rest in the tomb. He emerged from the grave that day as the firstborn from the dead, the manifest beginning of a new creation. And thus the old order of things is passing away now that Christ our Lord has appeared. He has begun to make all things new. And the great sign at the wedding in Cana is a divine foretaste, quite literally, of the unspeakable blessings soon to come with the resurrection of our Lord. As St. John tells us, transforming, Jesus transforming water into wine was the first of his signs by which he manifested his glory. It was this sign that inaugurated Jesus' public ministry and ushered in the great wonder and awe of the messianic age.
How excellent and fitting it is then for our Lord Jesus to begin manifesting his divine glory in the context of a wedding. What a profound thing for the Messiah to bless that marriage with his presence and miraculous work. Though the wedding he attended that day was indeed part of the old order passing away, Christ by no means despised it. Our Lord didn't call the whole thing off and do away with it now that the new age had dawned with his arrival. No, Christ Jesus shows us just how highly he esteems holy matrimony by using a humble marriage between two sinners to manifest his glory. And in this, dear Christians, our Lord Jesus has honored and sanctified marriage for us too. Even now, Christ blesses our marriages with his presence and is very much at work in them. Even now, he uses our marriages to manifest his glory. Be sure of that. We must therefore view marriage as a sacred estate, one that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. We must impress upon our children and all young people in the church to seek marriage earnestly. Likewise, all we who are married must hold our spouses in high regard, for they are given us by the Lord. He brought you and your spouse into union, just as he did for Adam and Eve in the beginning. And since Christ has thus sanctified marriage for us, we must conduct ourselves accordingly as those who live out our vocation as husband or wife in the presence of our Lord. A marriage where husband and wife strive to love and honor each other, pray for each other, forgive each other, read the scriptures together, and by faith seek to glorify Christ above all else, is certainly a marriage pleasing to him and a beautiful thing in its own right. But even so, our Lord doesn't expect our marriages to be without sin. He's well acquainted with the weakness of our fallen state and how the devil seeks to undermine our relationships. Jesus isn't surprised by these things, dear saints, and not one of your tears or sleepless nights has escaped his sight. The Lord knows the bitter struggles and trials you've been through as a couple, and those that are still ongoing, he knows. Just consider for a moment what happened in our text. There was a shortage of wine at an ancient Middle Eastern wedding. As you might imagine, this problem would have brought great shame and embarrassment, both to the new couple and to their families. In a communal culture, these sorts of troubles would be the talk of whole villages, and there wasn't any hiding. But dear Christians, like the mother of Jesus did in our text, we are given to bring these things to the one who can change water into wine. We're called to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence, fully trusting that the Lord will help us. 
No matter what happens in our lives and in our marriages, whether you're single or engaged, whether you're a widow or a widower, Christ will work all things for the good of those who love him. We have a powerful example of that in the wedding of Cana. Even amid great weakness and brokenness, even if it seems contrary to all rational judgment and scientific inquiry, Christ is able to manifest his glory in your midst, though it may not be in a way you expect. So take up whatever cross you find laid upon you, especially in marriage, and trust in him. Husbands and wives, forgive one another, since Christ forgives you. And know that even if our Lord seems absent or hidden in your suffering, he holds all things in his hands. And ironically, his power is made perfect in weakness. It was only after the wine ran out at the wedding that the glory of the Lord was manifest. Indeed, we should also point out the great irony that our Lord was merely an invited guest at the wedding in Cana. But Jesus, by his actions, took center stage, as it were. Whereas the bride and groom are normally the focus at a wedding, in our text we see that Jesus is the focus of the whole narrative. And with the miraculous sign at the wedding, Jesus demonstrates not only his total mastery over nature and his great love for humanity, saving the bride and groom from shame and embarrassment. But Jesus also reveals himself to be the Messiah, promised in the Hebrew Scriptures. And ironically, we find this Messiah beginning his public ministry in Gentile territory rather than Judea, a clear sign that his saving work would not be limited to the Jewish people, but would encompass the Gentiles too spreading even unto the ends of the earth, even here in Capo Beach. As our text says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Our Lord responds as her creator the divine Son of God, subject to no one, and yet also the Son of Man, for whom doing the will of his Father in heaven is a matter of first importance to him, over and against whatever social obligations might be expected of him. For in our Lord's mysterious words about his hour having not yet come, he speaks of nothing other than his holy passion and death on the cross. He speaks of that hour when, in perfect obedience to his Father, he would lay down his life to take away the sin of the world. He would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, and the Lord would lay upon him the chastisement that brings us Peace, peace and every blessing as the holy blood of Jesus, 
the wine of the bridegroom, which his bride, the church, lacked, was poured out in abundance. It would be that hour in which Christ would atone for all our sin. It was that hour about which he spoke to his mother. And despite our Lord's apparent reluctance to act at the wedding, the mother of Jesus said to the servants there, do whatever he tells you to do. St. Mary, the mother of our Lord, an icon of the church, here gives fine instruction for any servant of the Lord. Do whatever he tells you. And so at our Lord's bidding, the servants took the six stone jars, which were there at the wedding for the Jewish rites of purification, and they filled them with water up to the brim. In those days, one had to wash their feet and be purified before entering a house, especially for a banquet. But in these jars were meant to see more than mere protocol for good hygiene or odd cultural formalities. It's more than that. In these six stone jars, we see an emblem of the ancient set of laws given to Moses on Mount Sinai long ago. These laws were given for the purification of the ancient people of God under the Old Covenant, that is, the Old Testament. The people of God had to be made clean so they could dwell in the presence of a holy God. But these sacred laws were never meant to be permanent. Eventually, they would come to an end and be superseded. And like the stone jars at the wedding, they served their, pur their purpose for purification for a time, but ultimately they could not satisfy what was lacking. As one of our church fathers, St. Cyril of Alexandria says, the law perfected nothing. The, mos the Mosaic letter did not suffice for perfect gladness. And so just as the stone jars were filled at the wedding that day, our Lord Jesus came to fulfill all that was required for righteousness and purification in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill all that was written by Moses in the Torah and give us the benefit of his perfect obedience to the law. What joy and gladness we have in that, dear ones. It's no accident that our Lord makes wine as his first sign for wine gladdens the hearts of men. And this sort of feeling is by no means alien to the Christian experience, to have our hearts gladdened by our Lord. When you're at a party and surrounded by your closest friends and the wine is flowing, there's laughing and carousing, and all your cares seem to just vanish. How much more then, when you feel Christ remove the burden of your sin, can you taste the bliss of paradise? All your anxiety drifts away. All your worries and cares simply melt. And you find yourself suspended in time, as it were, in the euphoria of the forgiveness of sins in Christ. 
In him there comes the ecstasy of sinners justified by the love of our Lord. There comes the restoration of all creation. The dead shall be raised. The sick shall be healed. The blind shall see. And as with the six empty jars and the lack of wine at the wedding in Cana, Christ Jesus brings fulfillment and perfection where before there was only emptiness and want. Out of the water that filled the jars of, at the wedding of Cana that day, our Lord produced no less than 120 gallons of wine, the best wine of the finest taste. And as a famous poet once said, the, Lord saw its, the water saw its master and blushed. So too, our risen Lord fills our chalice this day, not with ordinary wine, but with his very blood, the blood of the new covenant. So come and taste the sweetness of Christ's forgiveness. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good and know that those who look to Jesus for salvation shall have no lack. To Christ be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.